All right, nice. I won't, I'm not going to spend much time on the technical aspects of navigating the university. You see my face, go on the web, you can find me in the dean's office. If you get stuck, don't understand something about the university, send me an email. Say, I met you at the study center, what do I do? If you, get, you, know, if you can't get a class or don't know what's, how something works. Uh, so, you know, an administrator uh, in academia is a loathsome creature, right? It's somebody who stopped doing what academics are supposed to do uh, and, and decided to organize others into ranks to do the same thing. Uh, and normally their job is to say no, right? We need more money for this. We need a new program in X. And you say, well, no, there's just no way to do it. Um, so uh, so it's, not, it's not like an honor to be addressed by the dean. I mean, you could think it is, but, but the faculty, when they see the dean, they're like running the other way. So, uh, um, so I, 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 that was when I was academic dean in, in uh, sciences. I did that for three years. Uh, it was 150 emails a day just solving, trying to solve problems. Got tired of that. So now I'm doing research and innovation. We have some new initiatives, and we can talk about convergent science for those of you who are scientists. But, but I wanted to come here to talk to you about uh, what to expect, what not to expect at the university. Because, uh, you know, the university almost doesn't warrant the name university anymore. Uh, think about that word, university. I mean, I make, I make a joke in my classes. I say, what's the opposite of university? And people think about it a minute. They're like, diversity? <laughs> in a way, it is. The opposite of university is diversity. Um, and and when I, I'm going to think about diversity of thought in a certain way. Uh, you know, the university used to be about coherent thinking, about assembling realms of knowledge uh, that pointed toward some fundamental knowledge that was a coherent view of the universe that we live in. And you could ask questions and maybe even answer questions like, why am I here? What is the meaning of all this? How did this world come to be? What is my place in it? What is my role? in the world? What should I be doing? Uh, what constitutes flourishing? What is a moral life? What is an ethical life? If you think the university is somehow going to collectively as a group of faculty focus our efforts and answer that for you, you're going to be very disappointed because that's not how the university works now. The way the university works now is you study a discipline you learn the, train, the art of your discipline and you think deeply in that discipline and you try to move research along in that discipline and most of the disciplines are not overarching in any way. Even physics and astronomy that I think about in my disciplinary research. I study exoplanets, planets that circle other suns. That sounds profound and dramatic, right? But what I do is they get crushed and they fall onto these dead stars called white dwarfs and we measure what they're made out of. So I can tell you there are other planets made of the same thing as Earth in our galaxy because I measured what they're made of. That sounds exciting. That ought to lead to some more fundamental question about, and you hear people sometimes say, maybe there's life out there on those planets before they're crushed and burned up in their suns. Uh, that's about as profound as it gets. In astronomy, you're asking questions with you know, physical parameters that are measurable. If you saw a signal from life, you would say it's there. But you wouldn't ask, what does it mean? You wouldn't ask, are there souls in those beings? 
uh, on that other planet, if you found any? Or, or should we find any? Do we expect to find any? Is the universe constructed in this way? Those are philosophical questions. So you would think maybe if you're interested in fundamental answers, you would go to the philosophy department. And there you'll be disappointed again. You would find an analytic philosopher in one corner using logic to argue from premises you might or might not agree with to conclusions that follow from the premises but might be in some way odious to you and not make you very happy. Um, but you wouldn't find anybody there asking the biggest moral questions. They have a center for ethics. And I spoke recently to the head of the Center for Ethics. She said, our donor insists on two things, that we don't talk about religion and we don't talk about politics. That the topics, the domains of discussion in the Center for Ethics, the PAR Center for Ethics, would specifically avoid religion um, because it's too contentious to discuss ethics in the presence of religion. And the donor doesn't really want a contentious ethics place. Uh, they want a study of ethics like you might think of professional ethics, right? Um, what are the standards by which we conduct our research? What is, a, what is a doctor ethically responsible for telling a patient uh, about their disease? You know, there might be many ethical questions. But again, they're down, they're down at this kind of level. Um, and, and what this university will seek to do is make you an expert in a discipline that you choose. Uh, it will not seek to do what your parents did. And you are lucky, you're very lucky. Uh, if you come here, well, how many of you come from a town of 10,000 or fewer people? Raise your hand if you're from 10,000 or fewer people. Well, that's about a fourth of you, maybe, roughly, yeah, so a small, small town. Um, you know, in a town that size, you know a lot of people, they know you, you have a community. Uh, it could be a not very diverse or a diverse community, but your parents likely indoctrinated you. And you hear now indoctrinate, you're like, oh, that's not a good thing. I, we don't want to indoctrinate people. No, they indoctrinated you. They gave you a gift. The gift is a coherent worldview. And let me tell you something about your worldview as Christians. Uh, that worldview is empirically based. It's not a theory, right? It grew out of events, experiences that real people had and was tested against the world. It works in the world. It grew in the world and it informs the world. Uh, and so you already have an advantage over the political theorists uh, who have Marxism and Gramscian theory and that you go and you hear about all these political theories. Many of them have never been applied successfully in the world. They're great. They sound great. They sound wonderful. Um, you've already got a, an edge up because you have something that, that emerged from experience, right? And that works its way toward the unity of all thought. Most of you can answer the question, why am I here? Most of the faculty cannot. They can answer in, in, a, in a maybe a, a, a trivial way, but, but I, I, was, I was over in the uh, Davy Hall with the chair of psychology and neuroscience. If you get in Davy Hall, you're doing psychology, you'll see there are rats in there, down in the basement, there are rats, because they do neuroscience, they study rat brains. And so I asked him a question. I said, Don, it's Don Lyle, I said, Don, do most of the people here doing neuroscience think of that neurology, those neurons in the brain, as the substrate of the mind, like bricks are the things a house is made of, but it's the house that matters, or do they think the mind is kind of an emanation or an epiphenomenon of all that neural activity? And he said, oh, mostly the latter. So they're thinking about neuroscience in a way that we are the sum of some nerves firing 
in our brain. If you think that way, if that's, the, if that's sort of the premise of all the research that you do, you might make progress in some physical mechanistic understanding uh, of what's happening in the brain. Uh, but the cost is pretty high if you think about it. Uh, the cost is uh, you no longer know why you even care about the neuroscience of the brain. Right? If, if all we are is the sum of some neuronic activity, if that's us, we're one, not very interesting, and two, meaning is really hard to extract. But, but you're not in that world, but that's not the worldview you're in. Uh, so, so, you know, in the sciences, it stops there in a kind of depressing materialism uh, that doesn't come together in anything other than a pragmatic way of living. You know, I'm here to be a good person, whatever that means. I'm going to train my nerves not to hurt other people or get on their nerves. That'll be my whole neuroscientific uh, objective in life. It's just not very satisfying. So you think maybe over in the humanities, we'll go and ask, we'll read great literature and try to figure out what's going on. Uh, and there is that. In literature, you have a chance to start to approach some of these big questions. But they, they don't seem to be the questions people are focused on. It's like they want to run from the big questions and ask the small questions. Like, in what sense can we say power is the axis along which all of us lie, and those who have power and those do not? And that, that's the thing that delineates us one from another, whether we have power or lack power. Power is the important ingredient that one measures a life by or an existence by. Again, that's not a very interesting question because what, what do you do with that information? How does it order your life? It doesn't. It doesn't really get you anywhere. So if you look really hard, you will occasionally find a professor who's offering something more. They seem somehow to have gotten it. They understand where you are. They understand that the questions you're asking can't be reduced to some sum of neurons or an, a single axis of power or a political theory that might redeem the world, right? That's what these political theories are about, utopian ideas about how we make the world better. But you know about sin. You know something about sin. Uh, and you know the world is full of it and that you're full of it. Sin, that is. Um, and that you can't make a utopia of the sort that these political theorists are after. But you'll find these professors, as I was saying, that, that have gotten it together. And so I'll mention one who just sent me a letter. Uh, he said he's teaching his, I'm gonna get this right, 105th semester in the English department. Uh, he's been here since the 60s. Shakespeare? Shakespeare, Chris Armitage. And he tells this story about when he was at Oxford studying for his PhD which is in the late 50s or early 60s, so you can guess his age. And he says, uh, he says, on my committee were J.R.R. Tolkien, as he says it, and C.S. Lewis. And for his, for his degree in literature to get his PhD, he had to answer a question from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said to him, Chris, do you have a soul? And Chris said, well, I, I do, I think I have a soul. And C.S. Lewis said, wrong. You are a soul. You have a body. Now trace that thought through all of the literature that you have read in English in the whole time that you've been and explain to me who thinks it's true, who doesn't, and why. And that was the only question C.S. Lewis asked him. And he had to go through 
literary, philosophical, and other exemplars of writing in which that question is at the forefront. That's a unity of knowledge question. That's not the question you're going to find in all of your classes, but you will find classes where that happens. And you should cherish those classes and use them to help you construct the missing pieces of your worldview. Because, okay, you're 18 or 19 or 17 in some cases. Uh, you can't possibly know all of the things you need to know. But what you do have is a framework. Uh, uh, it's a framework and, and it's a very strong world-proven framework of truth that you, that you must not forget in this place. Uh, why would you forget it? Well, someone is going to tell you in, let's say, a class in government about all the awful things Americans have done, about how terrible this country is, the mistreatment of Native Americans. Very much we talk on this campus about the legacy of slavery. Uh, and your answer to all of that is going to be, of course. Because you know about sin. You're not surprised when someone tells you all of the people who founded this country and made it what it is today were sinners, some of them with very, very dark souls uh, who, who wanted land or money. And out of greed, they mistreated other people in, in, in contradiction to the principles that Christians hold to be true. That's not surprising. Does that mean we should renounce the good in our country, no more than we should renounce the good in our faith, which is the next subject you'll be reminded of. There will be an attempt by some people to only tell you all of the awful things done by Christians. Guess what? Christians have done awful things. We have. That's a fact. You know that already. Are you surprised? No, you're not surprised because you know about sin. You don't deny the existence of sin either in yourself or others. And so these these gotcha moments where people will challenge your worldview are not challenges to your worldview. We don't defend that which is indefensible. The sin that is in us is not something we feel compelled to explain as good. We know it's not good. And we have the ultimate measure as Christians in Jesus Christ of what is good in a person and what is not good in a person. And he has instructed us through real words that came out of a real mouth and hung in the real air, heard by ears, vibrating by neurons that are the substrate of your mind, uh, and went into people who put them into effect. And what they found was, it's a great way to live. That living according to these principles, that living according to these principles of worship, these principles of morality, these principles of understanding what we are as humans, make all of the little subjects that we study come together in some unifying whole, that the university as a secular university, even if we all came to that conclusion, we would not be able to teach it to you as truth, because that would be a religious revealed truth, forbidden to a secular university to teach in the way other than as a historical uh, historical thing, not as a, as a theological thing. We don't have theology on this campus. So there's a many, many writers, uh, Newman comes to mind, who write the subject of the university is theology. Um, more secular people might say the subject is philosophy. Philosophy is not one of the subjects in the College of Arts and Sciences. It's the overarching subject. Or theology is even above that. 
We don't order our departments in that way, although the chair of philosophy would be very happy to hear that his, he is the preeminent department. But physics would have something to say, right? They would say, all you talk about in philosophy is in the mind. We actually know the laws about which the world are ordered, so physics should be the queen of the sciences. In fact, you hear this. Richard Feynman says, physics is the queen of the sciences. You hear philosophers say, philosophy is the queen of the sciences. The queen of the sciences is theology, people. Uh, study of the only thing that matters. There are people who say you're studying something that doesn't exist, right? That's fine. Let them say that. As long as you know otherwise, their words can hardly change or hurt what you do. What you know is what human flourishing consists of because your parents gave you that. So the university is going to have to operate, if it operates at all, in partnership with the study center, in partnership with your friends, your pastors, your families. Uh, and so I very much see my role as dean. And I would say this not as well, even if I were not speaking to Christians. We can't finish making you the person you're meant to be. That's not our job. We're going to teach you a few subjects. We're going to challenge you. We're going to teach you things you didn't know. Some of them will be hard to hear. Some of them may apparently come into conflict with articles of faith. Uh, if you are studying biology, you will learn about human evolution. You will be led inexorably to the fact that our genetics are so similar to some other animals that we must have come from common descent with a common ancestor. Does that make us a mere animal? No, it does not change anything about who we are. Uh, you do not have to give up your birthright to learn biology. It is possible to assimilate a kind of materialist mechanical view of how neurons, cells, grow and who you are as a Christian person, it's actually no more challenging than thinking about yourself a long time ago. So this is the last thing I'll talk about. You know that you were a cell. One cell, right? You started as one cell. And that cell multiplied and multiplied again and multiplied again. So if I say you were created in the image and likeness of God by God, and you respond by saying, no, I was a cell that divided and divided and divided again. And no law of physics or chemistry was ever broken along the way. Those cells followed every physical principle that we think we've derived about the universe. We may not know all of them, but we think matter follows these principles. Have I made a contradiction? And I would say we have not made a contradiction. Physics and biology can tell you everything, well, everything we know about the process by which you grew from a single cell. That does not change what you are, who you are as a human being. You are still a miraculous creation of God. These two things are eminently very compatible. And so if, if the original person grew over a period of much longer time in the same way that you grew in nine months, that need not be any more challenging than understanding the miracle that you are, and you are all miracles. I know this to be true. I have my own children. People say, oh, you had children. I'm like, I have no idea what miracle occurred to make new people appear in my household. <laughs> I mean, it's just a miraculous thing because they come as they are and they learn and they grow. And, you know, I have very little to do with anything about them. They, they astonish me every day in the same way that you're going to astonish uh, your professors, your parents, and everyone who comes to know you because you're going to have this 
this unity of knowledge, uh, and you're going to be able to answer questions that, that others can only ask and kind of wander around seeking answers to. So I'll, I'll stop there and take your questions. We've got about uh, 15 minutes to yeah, open for now. Um, you can have something in response to something Dr. Clinton said during his talk. It can be something totally off the wall. I don't know if they'll tell you the best classes to take. I'm not sure if he's allowed to do that. I'm, sure I'm not sure I know. <laughs> so I didn't go here, so I only know if some, actually if someone tells me, I haven't taken. Okay. The only courses I've taken here are my own. So. Which are obviously the best. Well, of course you want to take my course. Yeah. All that to say, people, open, open uh, mic or open Q&A for about 10 or 15 minutes. What do you teach? Uh, right now I'm teaching something called uh, Time and the Medieval Cosmos with a historian named uh, Brett Whalen. It's about uh, how the date of Easter became a critical part of the history of medieval life, really, and how complicated it is astronomically to figure out how to, how to see if you need, if you're going to celebrate Easter next year in a church that spans a continent like Europe, someone has to publish a calendar of when Easter is going to happen, which means you've got to predict a phase of the moon uh, and, and know when that's going to happen. So astronomy is required. So I teach with a historian and we cover the astronomical portion and the historical portion. We do not cover uh, the Easter mystery, if I might put it that way, mm -hmm. um, because then we'd be teaching theological truths. Mm -hmm. So we stop, stop short uh, as a secular. If it was in a Catholic university or a Christian university of some kind, then we would just have a pause and all go to church and <laughs> we, would, we, would, we would finish the course there. Uh, that's, uh, that's not what we can do in a secular university, uh, with good reason. I mean, uh, that, that would be unfair to Muslim and Jewish students and even atheists in the course who came to hear about the historical part. So that's what I mean by partnership, right? There is a Hillel Center for Jewish uh, students. Uh, so, so, you know, I think that's, that's what this place is for. So come here when you have deep questions and you'll get deep answers from people. Yes? Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Uh, I was at a dinner long ago. Uh, a few wine, we drank a little wine, I have to say, and it was a group of astronomers and a couple of non-astronomers who were obviously new age. They, they believed in crystals or emanations from crystals or something. And um, the subject turned to serious matters. And I, and I said, well, you know, I'm not going to hide who I am, uh, so I profess to believe what it is that I believe. But I, I prefaced it by saying, now some of you here who are astronomers are going to respect me less after what I'm about to say. And after I finished saying what I had to say, uh, one of the astronomers said, you're right, I respect you less. And I said, and, and you're going to suspect my work. And he said, I'll suspect your work. Um, because somehow to be committed to that compromises my objectivity as a scientist. Well, that's nonsense. But I knew he would think that, right? He thinks that because he hasn't thought very deeply um, about what he does. Uh, you know, physicists and astronomers, especially physicists, are thinking about what are the laws of the universe? But then they'll tell you, I'm a materialist. I only believe in matter. So are the laws made of matter? They're not. 
where are they? Where do these laws live and what do they inhere? And they'll usually say, oh, it's just my mind. So the law of gravity is in your mind, which means if you decide not to fall, you don't. No, it's, it's more, it's all, I always fall if I step off a cliff. So the law of gravity makes you fall, but it's in your mind. Well, my descri- the description of it's in my mind. It's a force in nature. What is this force made of? Matter? Show me this force. They have not reflected upon the foundations of their own knowledge, what we call epistemology, because they're doing physics. They don't question the epistemology of knowledge. That's your job, right? If you're going to keep the precious things that you know, you're going to have to go just past everyone else and say, what does this actually mean? Should I really be embarrassed to believe in a God who made everything? No more embarrassed than to believe in a spooky force at a distance that's not made of matter. That's a ghostly, (laughs) ghastly thing, right? Why is that not strange? Well, everybody's gotten used to that, and it does the same thing every time. Well, you know, my God does the same thing every time, too. I have, I have a lot of evidence for that. Um, so, so it's not, it's only culturally alien because it's been displaced from that culture. Uh, so yes, it's going to require a lot of earnest thinking, a lot of study, and a lot of, sometimes just bravery, right? And of course, it means you need to have thought through enough to explain how these things are compatible. And that's your job, right, in college. Learn the knowledge and fit it together with what you already know into a new and beautiful picture that makes you a full person who can see across domains and bring knowledge together into something that instructs you uh, in why you're here and what you're, what you're doing with the brief time we all have here uh, on this planet and what our ultimate end is. More questions? Nobody asked what class to take. So. <laughs> question yeah um i'm assuming just like working here and in your field you're obviously around a bunch of like different like thinking like non-believers and stuff mostly yeah Um, mostly so like where do you draw the line between like being bold because obviously we're called like be bold in our faith and then also like respecting like i don't know i feel like it's a hard line because you don't want to like like obviously like we're called to like share and stuff yep but and also like something else i struggle with is um like, we're held to a higher standard because the Lord Jesus is Jesus, but, like, we're not any less, like, sinners than people, so, like, not coming across as, like, judgmental or something like that, so, like, just your opinion. Yeah, I think I fail. <laughs> I come across as judgy, right? It happens. <laughs> yeah. It happens. It's, you know, you're going to do it wrong sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's a culture of, uh, of subtlety at the university. There's, there's no way to make progress in the same... Well, you'll see the pit preacher if you haven't already, right? <laughs> so cool. He hasn't mastered the art of There's no subtlety. He, now, he has a lot of things. He has bravery. Uh, and and he, he does have truth on his side at some level. Now, whether or not he's describing the truth in the same way you would. And so some of the elements are there. But he's missing some of the other virtues like prudence, right? Humility. Uh, And so this virtue thing is a package deal uh, and you're never going to get it right. But if you but if you earnestly try to do well, people will ask you, you know, you won't have to get in the pit and and start, you know, waving a Bible around because people will see 
you have it together in ways, look, almost no one has it together. So I have this theory that I, that I haven't tested. Um, but my theory is this, if you just walk up to a random person in America today, and especially on a campus, and you look at them with this earnest look, and you hold their hands and say, it's okay, it's all going to be okay, that most people would break out crying, that, that they are carrying within them something, some unacknowledged suffering, pain, or hurt from the world that they have no place to put, that that's the condition of almost everyone. If, if you cannot be in that condition, uh, if you can be a whole, healthy, healed person, which we're called to be because our sins are healed after all, that, that will resonate in ways that will be effective. And that's really all you have to do, I think, and then be ready and be ready to talk about it. Um, but you will have to be fitting it together. They're going to ask you hard questions. You're going to have to be fitting it together all the time and building and building a, a sophisticated... You remember Paul talking about, you know, you, you, were, you drank milk and now it's time for meat. You're getting to the meat of life. It's hard. They're suffering. They're difficult. They're, the questions that seem unanswerable, they're not unanswerable. They might require your life's work to get to a good answer. But that's good enough because that's, that's seeking, right? Seeking truth. We don't ever find the fullness of truth. We seek the truth. So I, I think, you know... It happens. It happens all by itself. If you just do those things, you know you're supposed to do. Yeah. I'm curious. Have you over the years seen any trends either, either among faculty or administration or among students in the way they process these things? Or like maybe trends of thought that seem to be more significant than other years? It's harder and harder to have a long, continuous thought or conversation. Uh, everybody wants a 256 character answer to everything. Um, and even if you sit in a meeting with the chancellor or other administrators, um, their phone is going off the whole time and you'll see their eyes will dart to it because something important has happened. And now they've lost the thread of the conversation. Uh, it was hard enough to have deep, thoughtful conversations when there were no distractions. It's all distraction. And so the, the, the worst trend I see is toward more and more distracted students, more and more distracted faculty, more and more distracted administrators. They're not immune, right? Everybody has this thing in their pocket that's constantly trying to get their attention. Uh, put it away. Get, leave it at home a day a week. Leave it at home every day. Leave it at home in the morning and get it at the end of the day. You can do that, right? You could actually have your phone off. Um, sounds impossible, doesn't it? Sounds crazy. Not have my phone? Um, what's it doing? You, know? you don't need to be in constant touch with everyone. Uh, it would go better if you have these long thoughts. Chris, can I ask the, the maybe final question? Mm -hmm. So we're coming up on 645, so this might have to be our last one. And, um, but I think for many of us here, like, probably getting to know local churches, campus ministries at this point, trying to find a, a Christian community to belong to, many of us, um, and also like experiencing UNC classes for the first time, right? So like getting a sense of what our major is or our field is or which professors we're drawn to and getting a sense of kind of how Carolina works on the academic side of things and meeting upperclassmen and getting a vision for like what does it look like to succeed academically at Carolina. Um, you, you have the unique combination of being both kind of a brother in Christ, a fellow believer, and also somebody who is a professor in part of the university. Um, so I know it would look different in each case, but 
fast forward four years and all these students in this room are like getting ready to walk across the graduation stage. Bringing those two worlds together, what would your aspiration be for like a like a full Carolina experience? Like one that includes flourishing in your faith and academically and any, any kind of closing? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll say, you know, if no matter what your field, if you can get into a lab or into a research situation in the humanities even, uh, get outside the classroom. You know, go study abroad if you can. Have, an, have a, a, a teacher, a, you know, a professor spend more time with you. That would happen in a study abroad. If you're in a science and you go to your professors, they normally will have a lab experience where you get one-on-one -on -one experience. Where you're going to learn is about everything deeply is in those one-on-one -on -one encounters with faculty. So you should try to design uh, your curriculum to have some of those experiences. You won't like some of them, or you'll really like others. Try to find one you like and, and do something with a faculty member that you like. So, so have those experiences. Um, second, you're going to leave with knowledge, but you're also going to leave with habits. I mean, you already have some habits. Maybe you have some bad habits. When you leave college, you're going to have a lot more habits. And by the time you're my age, they're going to be ingrained in you, you know, deeply. Uh, you have to craft yourself with your own habits. Um, so think hard about what you do every day and make prayer, make other things a sort of constant habit that you just put into your life if you don't have it already because what you do habitually is what you become, right? Uh, and, so, and so I think at the end of your four years, you know, I would like to see that you learned a whole lot of knowledge, but more importantly, you got a whole lot of new abilities around the knowledge, things that you can't do now and a whole lot of habits that stay with you forever and are good habits instead of bad habits. That would be my hope. Thanks for coming to share with Yeah, us thank you. Uh, so at 6.45, we're going to wrap up now to respect time, but uh, I'm, I'm still around if you want to talk at all tonight. Chris, I think, has another meeting to run to. Yeah, i got to run out. I'll um, stay for a couple minutes. But uh, if, you, if you enjoyed Dr. Clemens and you want another taste of him, we're hosting an event more for faculty and grad students. Yeah, it'll be more cerebral and less uh, personal probably. But y'all are equally welcome there. That will be on uh, a luncheon. We'll provide the meal on September 26th. Uh, I know several of y'all went to Carolina Way Camp, and we were like wearing costumes and glow bands and running around and throwing dance parties and going crazy. That's like half of the study center, and then this is kind of the other half, which is like engaging with these questions of what does it look like to be a Christian at UNC in this context? Um, what does it mean to like pursue your studies and your faith to, to the fullest at the same time? Um, so if you enjoy these kinds of conversations, please like make this make this place a home away from home. Come see us. Mary Rachel is also here on staff and is wonderful. Um, we have, I think, seven full-time staff members who all majored in different things at Carolina and have different experiences and love to um, have these kind of conversations. Um, and real quick, I'll plug just some of our programming coming up this semester. Uh, we have two seminars, one on the life and writings of C.S. Lewis. So nice shout out there by... Dr. Clemens tonight, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan and want to go deeper. We should get Chris in here to tell you about his uh, I was just thinking that as you were sharing that. Uh, but a seven-week seminar on C.S. Lewis, it'll start next week. Um, you can talk to me or you can email me at matt at ncstudycenter.org uh, if you want to talk more about that. And then also, Dr. Clemens right, rightly said that there's not theology at UNC, but there is theology just off campus. So if you just cross that, that magical road right there, you can get theology very close to UNC. Uh, we have a fellows program here uh, for students. We'll probably have 40 or 50 students involved this year um, across multiple years. Year one is kind of going deep in scripture um, and the grand overarching story of scripture, 
understanding all the different books, but how they all fit together into kind of one storyline. Um, and then year two in theology. Uh, this is our kind of most in-depth program. Um, if you thought about going to Christian college or are interested in pursuing like Christian ed, this is uh, led by our staff and visiting seminary um, professors, and it's a great way to kind of go deeper in your Christian education to complement um, your studies at UNC. Uh, so, Chris, thank you so much thank tonight you. for for sharing um, again. And uh, can I can I pray for you to close tonight? Would sure. that be okay? Sure. Father, um, thank you for this evening and for bringing these students here when there are many things going on and could pull their attention in many ways. Um, thank you even more so for Dr. Clemens um, being here with us tonight with all the things he has on his plate, Lord. Uh, thank you for wisdom that's been gained by staying close to you throughout a long career of faithfulness, a long obedience in the same direction. Um, I pray that you would equip him for every good work at UNC. Um, continue to um, be by his side as he carries out the work you've called him to here. Um, and thank you for the resource that he is for um, all students, and uh, in particular and for our purposes here tonight for Christian students um, as a brother in Christ. Uh, watch over him and all of us as we go forward from here today. Uh, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Chris.